0: Good morning, my name's Rachel and I'm a member at Morlin's Church. This morning we're going to be reading from 2 Samuel chapter 10, starting at verse 1 and ending at verse 19. It can be found on page 313 of the Red Bibles and I'll give you a few moments to find that. Okay, so 2 Samuel chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. In the course of time, the king of the Ammonites died, and his son Hanan succeeded him as king. David thought, I will show kindness to Hanan, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanan concerning his father. When David's men came to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite nobles said to Hanan their lord, do you think David is honouring your father by sending men to you to express sympathy? Hasn't David sent them to you to explore the city and spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanan seized David's men, shaved off half of each man's beard, cut off their garments in the middle at the buttocks and sent them away. When David was told about this, he sent messengers to meet the men, for they were greatly humiliated. The king said, Stay at Jericho till your beards have grown, and then come back. When the Ammonites realised that they had become an offence to David's nostrils, they hired 20,000 Aramean foot soldiers from Beth Rehob and Zobah, as well as the king of Makkah, with 1,000 men, and also 12,000 men from Tob. On hearing this, David sent Joab out with the entire army of fighting men. The Ammonites came out and drew up in battle formation in the entrance to their city gates, while the Arameans of Zobah and Rehob and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. Joab saw that there were battle lines in front of him and behind him, so he selected some of the best troops in Israel and deployed them against the Arameans. He put the rest of the men under the command of Abishai, his brother, And deployed them against the ammonites joab said if the arameans are too strong for me then you are to come to my rescue but if the ammonites are too strong for you then i will come to rescue you be strong and let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our god the lord will do what is good in his sight then joab and the troops with him advanced to fight the arameans and they fled before him. When the Ammonites saw that the Arameans were fleeing, they fled before Abishai and went inside the city. So Joab returned from fighting the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. After the Arameans saw that they had been routed by Israel, they regrouped. Habadezer had Arameans brought from beyond the river. They went to Hilam, with Shobak, the commander of Hadadizah's leading the army. When David was told of this, he gathered all Israel, crossed the Jordan, and went to Hillam. The Arameans formed their battle lines to meet David and fought against him. But they fled before Israel, and David killed 700 of their charioteers and 40,000 of their foot soldiers. He also struck down Shobak, the commander of their army, and he died there. When all the kings who were vassals of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with the Israelites and became subject to them. So the Arameans were afraid to help the Anamites anymore.
1: Thank you very much, Rachel. There are many foolish mistakes you can make in this life. Not brushing your teeth properly when you're young, that's a foolish mistake. Not working hard enough at school, that's a foolish mistake. Not eating your five a day, that's a foolish mistake. Rushing into that relationship that ends disastrously, that's a foolish mistake. Drinking too much alcohol, becoming addicted to cigarettes or other drugs, that's a foolish mistake. Colliding with someone as you walk along the street because you're looking at your phone, that's a foolish mistake. Buying that car that turned out to be a lemon, that's a foolish mistake. Putting petrol in your car instead of diesel, that's a foolish mistake. Not disciplining your children enough, So they grow up wild and indisciplined. That is a foolish mistake. Not preparing for retirement. That is a foolish mistake. Answering the phone and falling for that deal that proves to be fraudulent. That is a foolish mistake. And going on in the sermon introduction with too many examples, that would also be a foolish mistake. You get the idea. At every stage of life, there are foolish mistakes we can make, big and small. Decisions we make, paths we choose, and traps we can fall into that lead in the end to harm and misery and regret. This is just one of the facts of human life. It is part of the reality of living in the fallen world, with the freedom that God has given us as responsible creatures. We live in a world of risk and opportunity. I wonder what foolish mistakes you and I will have made before the day is out. But there is one mistake that eclipses all the others. There is one mistake that a person could make that matters more than anything else. The most foolish mistake you can make in this life is to fail to take Jesus Christ seriously. No other mistake you can make in life can cause you so much harm and misery and regret as this. Get this right and no matter what other mistakes you make, everything will be right in the end. Get this wrong And no matter what else you get right, you will regret this mistake forever. The most foolish mistake you can make in this life is to fail to take Jesus Christ seriously. But before I go on and try and show you from this passage why that is the case, I need to mention a problem. The problem is that taking Jesus seriously does not always appear to be the wisest course of action Not now, not yet, not at this present time. For many people, Jesus does not appear to be somebody who ought to be taken seriously at all. No doubt they may think he was a nice enough man, an interesting and influential man of history, a religious leader and all the rest of it. But the idea that every single man, woman, boy, girl in this room, in this city in this world, should treat him with the utmost seriousness, should submit to him as king, should worship him as God, that we should revolve our lives around him, does not seem to have much wisdom. It seems more to be foolish. Indeed, those who do take him so seriously, those who revolve their lives around him, who sacrifice themselves for him, who make him first priority, they would be the ones, so it would seem, who are making the mistake. Well, what is the evidence for my claim? Well, come back with me to 2 Samuel 10, the final stage of our present journey through this Old Testament book. And as we've already been reminded this morning, we are looking in this part of the Bible story at the kingdom of God taking shape. So I think a few people have said that this morning, it's a helpful way of speaking about this part of the Bible, just to get a handle on it, that what we are looking at at this point in time is the kingdom of God taking shape, and the kingdom of God means the rule of God over his world, the kingdom of God taking shape in the particular historical, physical form of the kingdom of Israel, which is ruled by King David. So here in ancient Israel is a kingdom. It comes into the world. It expands. It grows. We see how the rest of the world responds. And that is what this book of 2 Samuel is all about. But we're not here learning about the kingdom of David, the kingdom of God in earthly form for the sake of historical interest, or because they happen to be some of the best stories in the whole Bible. Now, the kingdom of David is here to teach the world in advance what it will be like to live in the kingdom of Jesus. What we see of David's kingdom in its imperfect shadow form is preparing the world for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And as I've studied this chapter this week, I've come to the conclusion that 2 Samuel 10 is here for one simple purpose, to make sure we treat God's king with the utmost seriousness. To show us what happens when we don't and to show us what happens when we do. Well, you'll see on the outline a simple three-point sort of outline, summary, and the first thing we see is that David's kingdom is a kingdom of kindness, verses 1 to 5. Have a look back with me at verse 1. In the course of time, the king of the Ammonites died, and his son, Hanan, succeeded him as king, or Hanan, however you want to pronounce it. The event that sparks all the action in this chapter, and right at the end of chapter 12, is the death of the king of the Ammonites. Now, as uh, Rachel already may have noticed, that this passage is slightly complex. There are lots of uh, names, particularly names beginning with A. Uh, There are lots of places and some sort of military strategy going on as well. So it's going to be helpful for us to see a map. And all we need to know, uh, for starters, is that David is in Jerusalem. And the Ammonites, mentioned in verse 1, are near neighbors of Israel. And they occupy the land just to the east across the river Jordan. So that's the first thing, just to get our heads around the landscape. Well, we met this king, Nahash, just once before in 1 Samuel 11, and we learned there that he was not a nice man. He was somebody who liked to gouge people's eyes out. He was somebody who liked to humiliate people. He was no friend of Israel. In fact, the Ammonites were long-term enemies of the people of God. You may even remember that his name means snake. He was defeated by Saul. Now, in his death and the period of instability that would follow, David has a perfect opportunity to do what we saw him do in chapter 8, which is subdue the nations around him and expand his empire further. And because of this, verse 2 comes as a double surprise. Verse 2, David thought, I will show kindness to Hanan, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. I say there's a double surprise in verse 2. One part of the surprise is that Nahash had, despite being an enemy of Israel and a cruel tyrant, at some point, otherwise unrecorded in 1 and 2 Samuel, showed kindness to David. We don't know what that kindness was. We don't know what he had done. But we do know that David was an enemy of Saul, and Saul was an enemy of Nahash. And so maybe it's one of those cases where your enemy's enemy becomes your friend. And while David was being persecuted by Saul, Nahash seems to have helped David in some way. Now, this does not mean that David is now obligated to return the favor, but he remembers it nevertheless. And so the second surprise of verse 2 is that instead of moving to crush the new king in this period of instability left by his father's death, David now decides, verse 2, to show him kindness. And if you've been here in recent weeks, you'll remember that word kindness, hesed, in the Hebrew, as Jack reminded us at the beginning, is a key word in the Bible. It's quite hard to translate into English. It is the undeserved kindness of someone worthy and powerful to somebody who is unworthy and less powerful. It is actually the lavish generosity that offers friendship to enemies. It is in the language of the New Testament, the grace that the Bible describes as being at the very heart and character of God. And in chapter 9, David showed this kindness to Mephibosheth, the grandson of Saul, Mephibosheth accepted the kindness and was elevated to the status of the son. And now we see David offers that same kindness to the young Ammonite king. It's a reminder that kindness, not violence, is at the heart of this kingdom. This is at the heart of David's character, his core. It is part of his makeup. It is what distinguishes his kingdom from all others. Well, how does David intend to show this kindness? Well, in this instance, it is recorded in verse 2. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanan concerning his father. Now, this is a piece of diplomatic practice still carried out today. Imagine if the president or prime minister of one of our allies, America, France, Australia, whatever, died. I don't think we would send a Hallmark card or a quick treat, ho- tweet, hopefully, we wouldn't do that. But the Foreign Secretary, Prince of Wales, maybe even the Prime Minister would actually get onto an aeroplane and go and attend the funeral of the person who died as a mark of our good relations. And this is what David does. Despite all the history that is passed between Israel and the Ammonites, David reaches out to the Ammonites, not as an aggressor, but as a peacemaker. He offers them the hand of friendship. He bends over backwards to offer kindness. Well, before we cut across the Jordan with the narrator to see the response, I want to just pause a moment and just reflect on what is at stake here on both sides. It's always helpful when reading the Old Testament to ask a question like this. What is happening to the promises of God? Sometimes, as we read in the Old Testament, the details can get quite complex and confusing. And a question like this, what is happening to the promises of God, orientates us back to the main storyline. It's a little bit like being lost down a back street of a strange city, and you kind of ask for directions, and you find your way back on the main thoroughfare. That is what a question like this does. What is happening to the promises of God at this point? Well, you'll remember that in chapter 7, David received an everlasting promise from God to rule his kingdom forever. He said he was going to crush all his enemies, he was going to bring peace to the whole world and blessing would follow. And you may remember that that promise rested on another promise, a promise that God had made to Abraham. This is the promise that is the sort of the golden thread that ties the whole Bible together. But through the descendants of Abraham... And now through David, God would bring blessing and peace to the whole world. And so can you see, as we put this story into that context, as we kind of find our way back to that main thoroughfare from the back street of 2 Samuel 10, can you see how that raises the stakes for what David is doing here? Here is a key moment for the promise of God and the kingdom of God. Will the promise of God extend to the Ammonites? Is the question. Will the kingdom of God expand to include the enemies of God? Will God's king be big enough? Will his kindness, his embrace be enough to embrace people like them? Or will something prevent it? Well, that's the question from David's side. What about the question from Hanan's side? See, here is a decision that is going to affect him and his kingdom. It's going to affect him, in fact, for the rest of his life, for the rest of eternity. Here is an opportunity presented to him to respond rightly or wrongly to God's king. Here is an opportunity to make the wisest decision of his whole life or to make the most foolish decision that he'll regret for eternity an opportunity to be swept up in the plans of God, to be part of the blessing of God that God's king is bringing to the nations or to remain outside it forever. Here is an opportunity for happiness, for peace, for life in the kingdom of God. So whether he knew that or not, here is the decision of his life. How do I respond to the kindness of God's king? Well, having set up the question in that way, let's cut with the narrator over the Jordan to witness the response. Verse two. When David's men came to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite noble said to Hanan their lord, do you think David is honoring your father by sending men to you to express sympathy? Hasn't David sent them to you to explore the city and spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanan seized David's men, shaved off half of each man's beard, cut off their garments in the middle at the buttocks, and sent them away. To say that this is not the response David wanted is a bit of an understatement. We probably felt at some point in our life the pain and frustration of having our genuinely good motives mistaken for evil ones. See, not all our intentions are purely good, are they? We all have mixed motives. We're all capable of doing bad things for, sorry, good things for bad reasons. But sometimes we do, by the grace of God, get it right. Sometimes we do actually do things for genuinely pure motives. And when those things are mistaken for evil ones, it really hurts, doesn't it? And here's a man choosing, for no reason, with no evidence, to interpret David's genuine act of kindness as an act of aggression. His action is designed to bring maximum humiliation to David and his men. See, beards in ancient Israel were a sign of adult manhood. Even the word beard in Hebrew is connected to the word elder. If we were a synagogue, you know, we would, all the five elders at this church would grow really nice beards, just as a sort of sign. Maybe we should do that, get a bit of respect around here. (laughs) I'm just joking. But to be a man is to have a beard. And so to cut off half of your beard was an act of enforced infantilization and humiliation. That might just make you think twice, might it? Next time someone asks you to shave off half your beard or half your hair for charity, as people do. And to cut off their garments in the middle, and it's unclear actually, it doesn't matter how hard I've looked at the language of this this week and read the commentaries and done the diligent scholarship that you'd expect me to do. I can't work out whether it's cut off horizontally or vertically. (laughs) But you can use your imagination, and you can decide for yourself. Otherwise, either, either way, it's deeply humiliating. Just imagine as you're watching the Wimbledon final or the football this afternoon, those men with their shorts suddenly sorry, I won't go down there. <laughs> it's clearly an act of shameful humiliation. And so Hannon deliberately pours shame. On the very people who had come, verse 3, to honor his father. Now we should be wondering, why does he act this way? Well, We'll come to that in a moment, in the second point. But first, notice what David does and does not do. Verse 5. When David was told about this, he sent messengers to meet the men, for they were greatly humiliated. The king said, stay at Jericho till your beards have grown, and then come back. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't act with revenge. In fact, nowhere in this chapter is David the aggressor. When David does finally act, it is self-defense. Even though his good motives have been deliberately misconstrued and his honor turned to shame, there is not a word of wrath or anger. Instead, notice what he does do. He extends his remarkable kindness to his humiliated men. He could have left them to their shame. He could have allowed them to come back into Jerusalem with their half-beards and their half-trousers, or whatever it was they had. But he hears about their disgrace. And he sends messengers to meet them, protects them. Says, just hold on, just come into Jericho, which as you may have seen on the map is the, the sort of the first place you come to as you cross the Jordan. And he restores their dignity those who have been shamed for him. He bends over backwards to restore them, to protect them. This is the kindness of the king, the king that the Ammonites have despised. It's important to bear this in mind as we look at the rest of the chapter. And we come now to the conspiracy in 6 to 14. Hanan's hostility towards David now takes the form of a concerted and organized campaign that actually runs all the way to the end of chapter 12. If you want to flip ahead sometime, end of chapter 12 is when it all ends. And then in the middle, we get that famous, terrible chapter 11. But this is the context. Verse 6, When the Ammonites realized that they had become a stench in David's nostrils, they hired 20,000 Aramean foot soldiers from Beth, Rehob and Zobah, as well as the king of Mecca with a 1,000 men, and also 12,000 men from Tob. On hearing this, David sent Joab out with the entire army of fighting men. The Ammonites came out and drew up in battle formation at the entrance to their city gate, while the Arameans of Zobah and Rehob and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. Now, all of this is written in a kind of a, a, a brisk style of a military report, and it can get a little bit confusing. Lots of names, some complex military goings-on. So let's get our map out again. And if this was an all-age service, this is the moment I'd don my big moustache and I'd point a board with a stick and I'd explain the movements. Well, David, remember, is in Jerusalem. This is where he remains for the time being. You may have noticed that David, at this point, doesn't go out to fight. Uh, it is clear from the end of the chapter, this is not because he's a coward or taking it easy in his palace, although that'll be different in chapter 11, because he knows he's not needed in every battle. So we've got Jerusalem, the city referred to, as we find out in the next chapter, is Rabbah, the main city of Ammon. And David sends, and there's a lot of sending in this chapter, David sends his brilliant but feisty commander Joab to meet the threat with the professional army of Israel. So there's Joab going from Jerusalem to Rabbah. Now, what happens is the, the Ammonites draw up in formation somewhere outside the city. And meanwhile, their hired helpers, these mercenaries from the north, are out in the open country. And so what we have is a classic pincer movement. Two bodies of two troops converging on an enemy. In other words, can you see from the map that Joab has walked into a trap? He's going to be squeezed from behind and attacked from in front. It's a very dangerous situation for Israel. However, Joab doesn't blink for two reasons. Firstly, because as we've already seen in 2 Samuel, Joab is a brilliant but ruthless commander who happens to have a brilliant brother in his arsenal. Verse 9, Joab saw that there were battle lines in front and behind him and he selected some of the best troops in Israel and deployed them against the Arameans. He put the rest of the men under the command of Abishai, his brother, and deployed them against the Ammonites. Joab said, if the Arameans are too strong for me, then you are to come to my rescue. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I'll come to rescue you. So the first thing about Joab is that he's clever, he's strategic, he's organized, and there is this kind of human side to things. It's a good example of human responsibility, actually using the means and the methods God has given us for his work in his world. But there's a little bit more going on here. The word rescue in verse 11 is a key word into Samuel. It's actually a word that is often translated as save or salvation. It's a word found in the opening lines of Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2, where Hannah says she delights in God's salvation. It's the word used in 2 Samuel 3:18 when David is said to come and bring God's salvation to the people. And it's this same word used in chapter eight to speak of God's victory over his enemies through David. In other words, Joab is not just a brilliant military commander, but he is somebody who believes that he is caught up in this bigger story of the salvation of God. He believes in God. He believes that he is in God's kingdom. And that God is going to do the right thing and save his people. And this faith in God comes out very strongly in what Joab says. Have a, look at, have a look at verse 12. Be strong and let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. Now you may have noticed as Rachel read the chapter that This is the only time that God is mentioned explicitly in this chapter. And here it is right in the center of the action. In the midst of all these historical details, all these military details, all these place names, in the midst of all the turmoil and conflict, we need to hear Joab's words. Because the biblical writer has put them right in the middle of the action. That's very, very significant. A moment ago, I asked, why does Hanan behave in this way towards David? Why is he so provocative and hostile towards someone who is trying to show him kindness? Politically, economically, strategically, nothing could have been more foolish for him to do. Everybody knew that David's kingdom was taking over the world. Everybody knew that David was God's king. So why does Hanan take this irrational route of self-destruction? The answer is precisely because this is God's kingdom. It is precisely because David is God's king. It is precisely because David is bringing the kindness of God that Hanan reacts in the way he does. Listen to Psalm 2, which, as we've seen a couple of times, is a kind of a theological commentary on these chapters. Psalm 2, we learn from the New Testament, was actually written by David himself, and it describes the conspiracy that he is caught up in right here. Psalm 2, look at it on the screen. He says, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. Now we're getting some light on the matter. Now we understand that Hanan's act of humiliation is not some schoolboy prank. But it's a very serious declaration of war against Israel's king, against God's Christ, against God himself. It is just one example of the worldwide conspiracy against God. And so we're beginning to see the theological heart of this chapter. We're beginning to see, aren't we, the fundamental choice that lies before each one of us. A choice regarding God's king. Canaan's act of hostility towards David is actually typical of humanity's treatment of God and his Christ. A treatment that would culminate in the humiliation of crucifixion. And if that's how the powerful treat God and his Christ, if that's how the powerful of the world respond to the kindness of God and his Christ, then imagine how they're going to treat those who line up with God and his Christ. Those who are sent as his messengers. And so it's a little note of warning here, isn't it? That if you stand with God's king, you'll find yourself humiliated by the Hanans of the world. If you align with God's Christ, you will find yourself rejected and humiliated by those who reject God's King. Your good intentions will be deliberately mistaken for evil ones. And you will suffer the disgrace and shame of the powerful and the proud in this world. You will not make it in this world if you stand with God's king. You will not make it. You will not achieve glory, honor in this world if you stand with God's king. You will receive humiliation and scorn. Now, what form that takes changes from time to time, doesn't it? You may not have your backside exposed to the elements and your beard shaved off, half off, but you will receive derision. Jesus himself said, as we've seen in John 15 recently, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If your friends laugh at you for your commitment to Christ, or as we've seen in 1 Peter 4, if they think it's strange that you do not join them in their degenerate lifestyle, if you are sidelined at work or dis, uh, disenfranchised in society, opposed by your family, sidelined by your peers, and that is exactly what you would expect if you align yourself with the Christ, who is crucified by the world. And so what is happening here is part of a bigger pattern of humanity's Rebellion against God it exactly what the Bible says will happen in Psalm 2. But there's another step. We need now to see how it will end in the conquest of 15 to 19. To the obvious disappointment of the Ammonites, the original aggressor, remember, the Arameans flee, leaving the Ammonites to retreat back into their city, and we'll have to wait to the end of chapter 12 to see David conquer Ammon itself. But now he's got some unfinished business with the hired soldiers from the north. Verse 15, After the Arameans saw that they had been routed by Israel, they regrouped. Hadadezer had Arameans brought from beyond the river. They went to Halam and Shobak, the commander of Hadadezer's army, leading them. So one final look at the map. The Aramean tribes after, uh, under King Hadadezer, whom we met in chapter 8, now get reinforcements. This is exactly what Psalm 2 says will happen, the nations of the world conspiring on an all-out attack on God's king. David responds by now leading all the armies of Israel, that's what all Israel means, across the Jordan to take on the Arameans. Verse 17, when David was told of this, he gathered all Israel across the Jordan and went to Helam. The Arameans formed their battle lines to meet David and fought against him, but they fled before Israel. And David killed several hundred of their charioteers and 40,000 of their foot soldiers. He also struck down Shobach, the commander of the army, and he died there. It's narrated in very brief, matter-of-fact form, but it's a big victory for David. He goes across the Jordan, he faces the enemy, defeats them, and they flee. There are a number of differences between this episode and the one we saw in the middle. Previously, David directed things from Jerusalem. Now he goes himself. Previously, very little blood was shed. Now, much blood is shed. Previously, the conspiracy kept rumbling on as the kings regrouped and got reinforcements. Now, with the Arameans at least, the hostilities come to an end. And so we see a conquest of the king of Israel, verse nine: When all the kings who were vassals of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israelites and became subject to them. So the Arameans were afraid to help the Ammonites. There's a note of unfinished business which comes at the end of chapter twelve, but the chapter ends with the Arameans learning that you get peace by making peace with God's king. And that the most foolish mistake you can make in life is not to take God's king seriously. His is a kingdom of kindness, which means the blessing and peace and happiness promised to Abraham could be theirs for the taking. But his kindness should not be mistaken for softness or for moral laxity. And therefore, listen as we conclude to how Psalm 2 continues. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You'll dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be ruled, uh, warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, let's draw this section of 2 Samuel to a conclusion. And as I said, we've been watching the kingdom of God take shape under David. David. And as we've been watching that, we've been seeing that as a preparation for the kingdom that is coming in Jesus. Great David's greater son, greater than David, wiser than David, more powerful than David, kinder than David, whose kingdom will never end. And as I said at the beginning, I've come to the conclusion that this chapter is here, in all its historical interest and detail, it is here for one purpose to make us treat Jesus Christ with the utmost seriousness, to show us what happens when we do and what happens when we don't. So I want to conclude just by reflecting with you on those two possibilities, those two possible outcomes of that great decision. And if you've never thought seriously about this this morning, today would be a great day to make up your mind. It is a decision you have to make Having heard the evidence, you have to decide which side you're on. You can't sit on the fence forever. And if you have made that decision before, then listen to this conclusion and make sure you shore up your decision, that you end the morning glad, absolutely thrilled that you're on Jesus' side. First, think with me about what it means to stand with the Ammonites and reject God's King. See, what we've seen over these last few weeks is that what it means for God's king to be king is that he is a conquering king. For all his kindness, God's king brings conquest of the world. Now, as Becky mentioned in her prayers, this is hard for us to get our heads around. We live in a democracy. We like the idea of voting for our leaders. God's king does not stand for election. He does not knock on our door asking for support. He does not seek popularity by amassing a social media following. He is the one God has installed on Zion. He is the one we see in Revelation chapter 19, coming on a great white horse with a double-edged sword to destroy everything that opposes him. And the Bible says that is a good thing. The Bible says, hallelujah, come Lord Jesus, because he is the one who's going to sort out the mess and the chaos and the cruelty that we see all around us. He is the one that is going to put everything right that is wrong in God's world. He's the one who's going to bring justice and righteousness, a justice that will sweep away all that is evil, that will bring peace to the earth At last, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. How can you think you can pray that prayer without conquest? This is Jesus Christ we are talking about. This is the man who got a little child on his knee and said the kingdom belongs to such as these. He is the conquering king. His kindness should not be mistaken for softness or moral laxity. And this is why the most foolish mistake you can make is to fail to take him seriously. To ignore him. To sideline him. To dismiss him. To close your ears to his word. To mock his messengers. It might look wise now, but it's foolish. And it'll prove to be the biggest mistake you've made in the end. It leads to misery now. The misery we saw in King Saul a little while back. The misery of insecurity. The restless guilt. The fear. The falsehood. This constant search for identity and other things. And in the future, this rejection will bring down on your head the terrible judgment of God it might seem safe now to ignore Jesus. But if we do, our future is one of fearful punishment because he is the one who God has appointed to judge the living and the dead. Yes, it is hard to say. It does make us feel uncomfortable to say it. But this is what the Bible says, that Jesus is the judge of all the world. And if we reject him now, we may feel safe. We may feel wise. But at the end, we will see it as the foolishness that is. And we'll find ourselves separated from all that is good and from God himself forever. It is a terrible thing to reject God's King. So on the other hand, what does it look like to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and King? Well, it means to enter the kingdom of kindness. See, in one sense, we live now in the kingdom of kindness. Whatever we make of God's King, every moment of life we experience the kindness of God. And the Bible tells us in a a number of places that this kindness actually comes from, from Jesus. It doesn't just come from some kind of creator person. It comes from Jesus, who is the creator, who is the son of God. And so actually, in many ways, we live in the kingdom of kindness now, whether you know it or not, whether you accept Jesus or not. Every breath you take, every beat of your heart, every mouthful of food you enjoy, every moment of comfort, Every moment of fun and interest and entertainment and sport and creation. Every kind word someone has said to you, every ray of sunshine. All of this, we are told, comes from the kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you might want to reflect on the week just gone the work you've done, the home you have lived in, the family, the friends. The car you travelled in to get to church perhaps, the feet you walked on, the family, the pets, the exercise, the health you have, whatever you've enjoyed this week. All of these come from the kind hand of God's King. And Paul says in Romans 2 that this kindness is supposed to lead us to repentance so we will avoid the wrath we otherwise deserve. But there is a kindness that goes even beyond this. When we come to Jesus, we receive a lavish kindness. The kindness that goes on forever. Last week we saw it pictured in his kindness extended to Mephibosheth. A kindness that is more than just meal and material gifts. It's the kindness of adoption. The kindness that actually brings somebody who has no claim into the family of the king himself the kindness that says he will eat at my table forever that he will share in the generosity the peace, the protection of the kingdom of God and that is what is open to us if we come to Jesus I wonder if you notice the words that we sung in our first song what reward will heaven bring everlasting life with him There we will rise to meet the Lord. Then sin and death will be destroyed and we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. Despite the fact we've lived in his world, rejected his kindness over and over again, he has not rejected us. Instead, he has come into this world, subjected himself to the scorn of the powerful, the scorn of all humanity, given himself up in the judgment of a cross to have the judgment we deserve poured down on his head so we might not have to. And therefore, can you see that this is a king you can trust with your very soul? Here is a king you can trust with your eternal happiness. Here is a king who is concerned with you through and through. Here is a king who gives you security, identity, peace, Here is when that terrible anxiety Flick mentioned comes to an end. Here is when the exhausting quest for identity that is churning our society is over. David was a king of kindness. But it's Jesus who comes into the world to give us himself on the cross. And therefore let's make sure that we do not respond like the Ammonites with hard hearts and rejection. That would be the greatest mistake we could make. But let's instead turn to him with all our hearts, receive his kindness with thankfulness and joy. So I'm going to pause, I'm going to read a quote, and then I'm going to pray. Let's uh, bow our heads and pray. Listen to these words from... 16th century reformer, Peter Vermigli. By divine goodness, we have been gathered into his happy army and under the banner of so noble a prince and so great a brother, he will spare neither goodwill nor great power to help us. Let us yield ourselves completely to him. Heavenly Father, we have seen the unstoppable advance of your kingdom that will bring destruction to all who reject the unending kindness of your king, but salvation to those who trust him, to those who suffer disgrace for his sake in this world. And so we pray that we might not harden our hearts against the kindness of Jesus, that each of us might be found among those, that happy army, who are scorned for his sake and know now and forever the riches of his kindness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.